at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you'd like to read along with me, pull up your, uh, your Bible website. Uh, BibleGateway.com is one I often use. Or uh, pull open your Bibles that you have at home. And read with me 1 Peter chapter 3. These words. Starting in verse 17. And we'll start the reading in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So scripture passage tonight, it's the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 27, Lord's Day 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism, and this is the second Lord's Day on the subject of baptism as the sacrament of God's church. Question 72 asks, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Question 73 says, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? And the answer is, God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ wash away our sins, just as water washes away dirt from our bodies. But more important. He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. And question 74 says, should infants too be baptized? And the answer is, yes, infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are his people. They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant Infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. That's the teaching of the catechism. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, enlighten your word this evening that we may see what a great blessing it is to have been given the sacrament of baptism a visible expression of the word that proclaims that Jesus Christ 
has redeemed us by his blood and by his spirit. And that the salvation that we receive, although not seen by the naked eye, is as real, as true, as water that hits our skin and washes away the dirt. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to pose a question to you, and I think it's an enlightening question, because I think it helps us dig down to what we believe about baptism and how it differs from other churches, denominations. And that is the question, Does baptism save you? Does baptism save you? It's a really good question. And uh, as I've been able to participate in a number of online groups, one of them is a a large group of Reformed-minded believers. And in that group, there's a lot of Reformed Baptists, which would be those... uh, who believe uh, in the doctrines of grace and other Reformed distinctives, but believe in only believers' baptism. Uh, If you ask this question in a group like that, you're going to have a lot of those kinds of people tell you, um, no, of course not. Baptism doesn't save you. Um, it's It's an outward expression, right, of an inward change. Um, this comes from the understanding that for them, baptism, uh, baptism only comes after one makes profession of faith. It only comes after one makes profession of faith. Um, but you would have um, uh, Reformed believers who are not Baptists, who are um, Pado-Baptists, who believe that um, baptism includes the children of believers, answer this question with yes. Yes, in terms of First uh, Peter three, because if we're going to say no, baptism doesn't save you, then we have to ask ourselves, well, well, why does the Bible say that? First Peter chapter three, verse twenty-one. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Baptism that now saves you. Um, That's what the Word of God says. It says, baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. So the question that we need to be asking ourselves is not, does baptism save you, but in what way? In what way can the Apostle Peter say baptism saves you? And it's pressing into that question, it's pressing into that reality that gets us to the root of what baptism means and um, why we as Reformed believers um, view it differently than other denominations. Um, So, next time someone says, does baptism save you, 
uh, think before you answer no, because the word of God actually uses the words, baptism now saves you. And hopefully by the end of this message, the sermon, you'll have a better understanding of what that actually means, okay? Our theme tonight, baptism now saves you. Through Well, I should say by the death and resurrection of Christ. So our theme tonight, baptism now saves you by or through the death and resurrection of Christ. We're going to have three points tonight. Um, and they go like this. Not only the water, but the blood and spirit. The second point is not only the sign, but the seal. And then the last point is not only adults, but also children. So not only the water, but the blood and spirit, not only the sign, but the seal, and not only adults, but children, also children. So let's look at this first point in relation to question and answer 72 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, no, uh, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? So it's looking at the outward, right? And it's saying outward itself. You could say um, the outward washing alone. Is it the actual outward washing that washes away sins? Um, and the answer is no, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from sin. So Christ's blood and spirit. Now this, of course, points back to what we already read earlier in the catechism. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? Uh, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me and his sacrifice on the cross. And to be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. So when I say baptism now saves you by the death and resurrection of Christ, 
What I'm saying is baptism now saves you by the blood and spirit of Christ. Baptism apart from Christ's sacrifice, which is represented by his blood, and apart from his resurrection, represented by the pouring out of the spirit, right, is powerless. It's empty. It's just getting wet. That's all it is. It's just getting wet. So it's not only the water, but the blood and spirit. And I think it's important to understand that when we say not only the water, we're not saying that the water is insignificant and meaningless. The water is pointing to something. The water is being used of God to express a deeper, more uh, spiritual reality. And the water is the visible word in the form of baptism. Uh, the word of God says Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross for your sins and was raised to life three days later so that you could die to your sins and be raised to newness of life. And what does baptism do? The water of baptism, touching your skin, being placed upon your head, washing you, is to show you that the blood of Christ has done its work and the spirit of Christ has been poured out on you for newness of life. And these realities become united. United. In expressing the outward and the inward. The outward and the inward. Not the water, but the blood and spirit of Christ. So if you look at our passage tonight, right? First Peter 3. Funny story, uh, last semester in uh, uh, General Epistles and Revelation, we preached from 1 Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter, and we got to choose our texts. We got to choose what, what passage that we wanted to preach from. And this passage about Jesus' death and him going to preach to spirits in prison and the correlation between Noah's Ark and baptism and salvation was one of the texts that you could choose. And nobody in my class chose this text. And I think it's because it's, it's a difficult one. It's, um, there's a lot of unknowns about what Peter ex exactly is saying here. And then up here, of course, now I decide to pick it up and, and look at it. And hopefully I can do it some justice. But we're not going to tackle all the issues being expressed here in this passage. Um, verse 17. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Um, verse 18. Remember, when I began this conversation about baptism, I said we cannot separate baptism from what it symbolizes, what it signifies, what it points to. And that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you look at any passage in the Bible, in the scriptures, that speaks to baptism, you do not have to look very far before you find Christ's death, burial, and resurrection being expressed. And here, in 1 Peter 3, look. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, 
while the ark was being built. So Peter talks about Christ um, preaching to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Uh, a lot of people think this is an allusion to a popular writing at the time uh, of Peter's day in the Jewish tradition. It would have been the book of Enoch. Um, and so this is extra biblical literature, but uh, Peter is using it as an, uh, an analogy, as an illustration that he knew his audience would understand or grasp, right? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's one explanation, but the reality is uh, we're not going to get to the bottom of this. I've, I've got a particular position about what's happening here, um, but it's not the only position that's spoken of. I don't know what spirits Christ went and preached to. I don't know if this really happened or if this is an illustration. Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't know who the spirits are who disobeyed long ago uh, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. But what I do know is that Peter is pointing to the flood, the flood as an illustration of baptism. Uh, and that's important to us because I believe that there is a whole aspect of baptism, what it's pointing to and what it signifies that is not often expressed in our circles. And that is the baptism is not only an illustration of salvation, right? It's also an illustration of judgment. That's what the flood is. Judgment. But there is a family who was saved through, through that baptism. The baptism of the whole world. Right? And that's Noah and his family. Only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. Through water. And this is where Peter brings up the discussion of baptism. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And Peter clarifies, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Um, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the question that we have to ask is, who's pledging God to God? Who is making a response of good conscience toward God? Is that us? Is that what we're doing in our baptism? We are making a pledge of good conscience before God? Uh, no, what's happening here, I believe, is that Peter is saying that Christ's satisfaction in the atonement, that Christ's work in his death, burial, and resurrection is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And it's on the basis of that pledge that we see how baptism saves us. Baptism saves us because when it is joined with faith, it is a visible expression of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that accomplished, which is the forgiveness of our sins and the resurrection of our bodies. Not only the water, right? But the blood and spirit. Not only the water, but the blood and spirit. Christ has made the pledge of good conscience toward God, and he has gone into heaven at God's right hand where that pledge forever stands. This is why 
This is why the accuser can no longer accuse who brings a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. And what you're saying in baptism, what we're saying in baptism is we're saying that when this child believes, when we believe, when we have true faith, we are united with Christ. We are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And that baptism is a sign of that unitedness of that union with Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And it is a seal of that death, burial, and resurrection. It seals that death, burial, and resurrection to us. And that brings us to our second point, doesn't it? Point two, not only the sign, but the seal. Not only the sign, but the seal. Question 73 says, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Uh, why then does the Holy Spirit, what, is the, what does this mean when he says the Holy Spirit? The catechism says the Holy Spirit calls. Well, the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit. So, what he's talking about here is Scripture. Why does the Scripture call baptism the washing of regeneration? And the washing away of sins. Uh, we looked at these two uh, proof texts earlier. Um, when we discussed this reality pointed to in Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12, or excuse me, Titus chapter 3, it says the washing of regeneration, right? Oh, yeah, question 71, question and answer 71. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. That's where uh, washing of regeneration occurs. And then Acts 22, Paul says that when he was in... Um, um, when he was in Damascus recovering from his being blinded, uh, the gentleman came to him and said, get up, uh, be baptized, washing away your sins. Um, so, so scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration, the washing away of sins. And scripture even says baptism now saves you, okay? So it's tying these two realities together. An outward washing and, and what that washing represents, right? Not only the sign, but the seal. Why does Holy, Bath, Holy Spirit, why does the word of God call baptism, the washing of regeneration, the washing away of sins. And the answer is God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as water washes away dirt 
uh, from our bodies. So the washing of sins is no less real than the washing of dirt from our bodies, right? The washing of sins is no less real than the washing of dirt from our body. And so, these realities are united. There's a sacramental union between the washing away of our sins and the washing of a child in baptism, the washing of an adult in baptism. They're tied together. And this is what we call the sign, right? The sign is the washing of the body with water. That is the sign of baptism. And it signs, it signifies the washing away of our sins. So next time you see a baptism performed, you see a child or an adult receive the sprinkling of water um, or water poured over their head or even being immersed. All of them are, are, are fine modes of baptism. If you see that happening, then what you need to think is that is the washing away of sins. Just as much as it is the washing away of dirt. Because these realities have been united. But more important, second answer. He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. More important, he wants to assure us, assure us, this assurance is the seal. He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water, spiritual. United with the physical. It's the visible word. As surely as we see someone being baptized with water, so surely is the spiritual reality the same. As true as the washing of sins is, is the washing away of dirt. And Peter makes this proclamation clear. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge, Christ's pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you by the death and resurrection of Christ. Because baptism and its salvific qualities is only found in the union it has to the true salvific work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Not only the sign, but also the seal. Let's look at this last point. Uh, this is where it gets controversial, all right? Point three, not only 
adults, but also children. Not only adults, but also children. Uh, should infants, too, be baptized? Uh, should the children of believers? Of at least one believer. Are they the uh, appropriate recipients of, of baptism? The, uh, the sacrament of baptism. First Peter 3 doesn't speak a lot to this. I believe uh, our passage from last week, Colossians 2, is enlightening in this fact because it uh, relates circumcision, which was an old covenant reality, um, to baptism as a replacement of circumcision uh, from the old covenant into the new covenant. And that's enlightening to this discussion or conversation about baptism and infants. Now, the answer that the catechism gives is yes, infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are his people. They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Um, so, uh, if you think of, of baptism in the way that I grew up thinking of baptism, uh, a, uh, a way in which baptism is so closely tied to uh, the actual working of regeneration that the only proper recipient of baptism would be somebody who believes, who has made profession of faith, um, then you wouldn't understand what is being discussed here in the catechism. You wouldn't understand how uh, Reformed Christians come to this understanding and grasp. Um, if you understand baptism in the typical uh, Baptist way, which is seeing baptism as uh, uh, basically the same as, as a profession of faith, uh, then, then you, you, you see it as children, they don't understand what's happening to them. They don't know what's happening to them. They don't even see, they, they won't ever remember it. So what good does baptism do in this sense? Uh, and that's because baptism is so closely associated with one's own testimony, one's own uh, conviction, one's own uh, ability to, to profess, ability to be able to, um, to say, I believe in Jesus. I've made profession of faith. Uh, and we, we're not downplaying the importance of a profession of faith. Um, but baptism, baptism is not about what we do. Right? It's about what God does. When you understand that our salvation is not one that um, we have earned in any fashion whatsoever, um, that God's grace is a grace that reaches down to us in our helplessness, uh, apart from any, anything in us, and makes us alive then you get to see a little bit closer what baptism means, um, what it's pointing to. Um, when you see a, a, a helpless infant being baptized, and when you see a professing adult being baptized, it means the same thing. Um, but what 
the catechism doing, is doing here is, is saying that um, baptism is, is not only uh, sacramental, uh, sacramentally united to the death and resurrection of Christ, but it is so as a covenant sign. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were God's people, and they were given a covenant sign. Every male child on the eighth day would be circumcised and set apart. But that gracious covenant sign is expanded in the New Testament. Not only uh, male children are the recipients of that uh, covenant sign now, and not only the people of Israel, but everyone. Everyone. Everyone is a recipient. Every Christian is a recipient, man and woman, uh, adult and child of the covenant sign. Infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are his people. They no less than adults are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Children and adults are given the same promise in this covenant sign. What is the promise? What is that promise? They're promised that if they believe on Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven of their sins and given the Spirit. They're promised the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Every adult and child in God's covenant, people, is promised this. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church, distinguished from the children of unbelievers. It's done in the Old Testament by circumcision, replaced in the New Testament by baptism. If there is a scripture passage that I would point to um, that enlightens this to us, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Or maybe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to find out in a second. Hang in there. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Write this down. It's a good passage to go to. And Paul uses the covenant people of Israel, their history. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. And they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So you see what, see what Paul's doing here? He, he sees the Red Sea crossing. When the Red Sea was split. And the people of Israel went through the sea. Onto the other side. Men, women, children, everyone. That that was a baptism. And they lived through that baptism. Pharaoh and his soldiers, they were judged by that baptism, right? But Paul says the people of Israel went through it. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud. This aligns with that understanding that baptism is a mark of the covenant and that infants should be received in the Christian church and be, be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. 
the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, immorality as some of them did. And then one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And what Paul's saying here is really important. He's saying that because we as the people of God have the privileges of hearing the preaching of God's word, have the privileges of having the sacraments administered like baptism and the Lord's Supper, we should not think that we are more privileged and favored because if we do not join those things with true faith, then we will be judged just like the people of Israel who wandered in the desert for 40 years and who were struck by judgments of God were. And that's important for us to hear because Baptism now saves you by the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, children are the proper recipients. Children of believers are the proper recipients of baptism. But if the children who are baptized in our church do not join that baptism with the reality, if all they have is baptism now saves you, but not by the death and resurrection of Christ, if all they have is the outward washing but not the washing away of our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, then, uh, by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, then they have nothing. The promise that God has, has given to them, offered to them, has not been taken, not been received, not been accepted. And this goes for all of us, not just uh, the children that we see baptize, baptized, but our own baptism. Whether we were baptized as an infant, whether we were baptized as a professing adult, um, it doesn't matter. This baptism is something that is meant to comfort us. Yes. It is something that we're meant to improve upon, like I said last week. Yes. But it's also something that must be joined with faith, faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a faith that sees in Christ's death our death, the death of our sinful nature and our flesh, that sees in Christ's burial our burial, buried with him in baptism, that sees in Christ's resurrection our resurrection to newness of life. Baptism now saves you by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you joined your baptism, if you've been baptized, with faith, with the reality which it signs, which, which it signifies and seals? Have you been baptized? If you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? What's keeping you? What's holding you back? What I want us to see again here is that this is a visible expression of God's word to us, a visible expression of spiritual realities that God has given to us in his grace. It's not something we are to take for granted. It's something we're meant to cherish, treasure. 
Um, it's something we're meant to, to, to take with the proper weightiness. It's something that's meant to comfort us and encourage us. But it's also something that's meant to warn us. Warn us because if that baptism is not united with faith, it is not something that's representing salvation and the washing away of our sins. But it's something that will signify the baptism of judgment. Like the flood. Like the destruction of Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. May we not come into that condemnation. May we see our baptism united with its reality. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of baptism. Thank you for the salvation that it represents. We love you. And we praise you for the gift. May we join our baptism, whether we were baptized as an infant or an adult, a child, a youth, a senior. May we join our baptism with its reality found only in the perfect salvific work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was put to death once for all. He was raised for us once for all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.